Hi, I'm Emory Brown. I'm an anesthesiologist at Mass General Hospital, a professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School, and a professor of computational neuroscience at MIT. What I'd like to, you to do today is talk to you a little bit about anesthesia, and I've entitled this talk, Unconsciousness Under General Anesthesia is a Dynamic State. So these are the main points which I'd like to share with you. Under general anesthesia, the brain is not turned off. It's actually quite active. It's actually quite dynamic, and I'm going to show you that. Anesthetics work by creating oscillations, rhythms in the brain, that block the ability of various parts of the brain to communicate. We're going to see that very dramatically. The way we're going to see it is using the electroencephalogram, the EEG. It's a way to measure brain waves. And as a consequence of these oscillations, we can use this to track the state of someone under anesthesia and know whether he or she is sufficiently unconscious or not. So, just a brief overview. 60 million people a year receive general anesthesia in the United States, and about 250 million receive anesthesia worldwide. Anesthesia revolutionized the practice of surgery. But before I go on and tell you a little bit about the history, let me just explain what I'm talking about. What is general anesthesia? So it's a drug-induced reversible state, and it has these four characteristics, these five characteristics. Unconsciousness, amnesia, meaning you don't remember what happens, analgesia, you don't feel pain, akinesia, you're not moving, it makes it easier for the surgeons to operate, and we do this by maintaining stability and control of the physiological systems, respiration, body temperature, heart rate, blood pressure. And the key part is it's reversible. So we put you in this state and we bring you out so that you can undergo surgery or an invasive diagnostic procedure. What's said very often is that anesthesia, how it works, is a mystery. And I want to leave you with the idea today that that's not the case. It's not a mystery. We have some very, very good ideas about how it works. And the, as we gain a better understanding of how it works, it allows us to take better care of patients. So before we go on, let me give you a brief history of, of anesthesia. So William Morton conducted the first public demonstration of ether as anesthesia at Mass General Hospital back in October 16, 1846. Morton was a dentist. And at the time, people did not take very good care of their teeth. And he realized that he could install a full set of dentures if he, were, if he could remove all of the rotten teeth from a patient. As you can imagine, this, was, this would be very, very painful. So what he did was he was looking for a way to put the patients in a state so they could tolerate this dental procedure. Surgery was in the same situation at the time. There was no way to render someone insensate to undergo surgery. And because a lot of the surgeries were performed because of infections, a lot of the surgeries were amputations. And surgeons like dentists were measured by, their, their quality was measured by how quickly they could carry out a procedure like this. And supposedly Morton could remove a tooth within under a minute. So through interactions with Charles Jackson, who was a chemist at the time, Morton learned about ether. In addition, ether was like a social drug. It, people used to have it, little vials of it, on their counters, and maybe after a meal you'd sniff a little ether, help you feel good after a meal. And 
Morton realized that if enough ether were sniffed or inhaled, that someone could be rendered insensate. So he proposed this idea of operating on someone under ether to John Collins Warren, who was a major surgeon at Mass General Hospital back at the time. So on October 16, 1846, Gilbert Abbott was the patient who had a tumor on his neck that John Collins Warren wanted to remove. So they, Morton built these flasks, these very nice solid glass flasks, and he had sponges inside that were soaked with ether. He held the, the flask in front of Abbott's face, he inhaled the ether, he was rendered insensate, Warren performed the surgery, and afterwards he said, this is no humbug, meaning this was the real deal. And that was a revolutionary event. A few days later, about a week later, he contacted Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who was a professor at Harvard Medical School at the time, and he asked him how should he name this phenomenon that he had just produced. And Oliver Wendell Holmes thought about it rather carefully. He said, um, we should call it anesthesia, meaning from, coming from the Greek, meaning lack of sensation. So the adjective will be anesthetic. And he went through a whole set of other terms, which he didn't, which he said really didn't fit the, the bill. And afterwards, um, he also commented that we should pick this term carefully because whatever term we use will be with us now and forevermore. And just to give you some idea, that was October 18, October 16th, 1846. That's fall of, that's fall of uh, the year. By the end of the year, the practice was being carried out in, in Europe as well. So you can see how quickly it spread because it was a very, very important advance in, in medicine. So what do we do today? Well, we still use ether. On the left, you have diethyl ether. On the right, you have sevoflurane, which is just a fluorinated ether. So in some sense, we haven't, we haven't come very far, but it also speaks to how effective ether was and the fact that we can still use it today. So how do we actually do this? Well, we don't just use a single drug anymore. We use combinations of drugs. So for example, if we go back through the various states that I said we'd like to try to achieve, so for analgesia, in addition to ether, we would give you opioids. I'm going to talk about propofol, so to, to render you unconscious, we administer propofol, and then we could also use the ethers the same way. When someone's unconscious, we feel that they also have amnesia as well, and that, that, that tends pretty much always to be the case, with rare exception. So the drugs which we use to make you unconscious are sufficient to produce amnesia. But if we wanted to give you a drug where you might just be, you want, might want to have the patient just be sedated without being amnestic, then we could use a benzodiazepine. So those are drugs like Valium, for example. And then in addition, we use drugs which relax the muscles, you might call them paralyzing agents. The one that um, we don't use anymore but was often heard about was curare. And if you look at that list that I have there, you see how ether is in every category. Ether can do a little bit of everything. And so that's why, you know, we were very fortunate to find a drug that, a single drug that, you know, would, you know, could meet all these characteristics. Now this is wisdom in retrospect. We didn't have these characteristics laid out. This is how we currently define 
you know, anesthesia. And then, as I mentioned, stability of the physiologic systems, usually hemodynamics are the things that are most profoundly affected. That is, the blood flow and blood pressure are the things that are most profoundly affected, so we have to give drugs to stabilize those as well. So that's how we do it. We call this balanced general anesthesia. So you have a combination of drugs, each of which kind of targets one or more aspects of the state of anesthesia, the general anesthesia that we want to achieve. So what I'm going to talk about now is how does propofol induce unconsciousness. And propofol is our most widely used anesthetic. It's actually 2,6-diisopropylphenol, and it's, it, it's very white. And if you touch it, it feels very, very greasy. And I have here John Glenn, who was the discoverer of propofol. He developed the molecule when he was uh, working at AstraZeneca. And for this discovery, he received the 2018 Lasker Award. So propofol is our most used anesthetic, United States, worldwide. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about propofol. And as I said, how does propofol make you unconscious? So the first thing I have to tell you is just a little bit of a little bit of uh, molecular biology, let's say. Just a little bit. What propofol does when you administer it, it travels through the bloodstream and it finds the nerves. It binds to a very spe specific type of receptor called a GABA receptor. Now, the GABA receptor is a receptor that controls the flow of chloride ions into neurons. Right? Chloride ions have a negative charge. So in a chloride ions, if more enter into a cell, they tend to shut the cell down because things become more negative. It's difficult for the neuron to transmit the electrical impulses. So if you do this across enough nerve cells, what you're going to see is there's always current flowing in the brain. What this drug is doing is causing alterations in those current flows. And we're going to get a good sense of what that looks like. So that's the first thing. So the propofol binds to these receptors, these GABA receptors, and sevoflurane does the same thing too. It binds at other sites as well, but let's say that both of them bind to GABA receptors. Now what's going to happen is the dynamics of the brain activity are going to change. And let's, get a, let's take a look at how, what that's going to look like. So here I've put up a, a, a schematic to show you what brain waves look like. We call it the electroencephalogram, or the EEG. And it's a measure of brain waves. And all it is is just a very simple voltmeter. If you put two electrodes on the scalp and you connect it to, you connect the electrodes to a voltmeter, because there are currents always flowing in the brain, you can measure potential differences. And the potential differences will be different across different parts of the brain because different parts of the brain have different levels of activity at any given point in time. Right? So this is a key, one of the first key ideas. There are always currents flowing in the brain. Right? And these currents appear as oscillations in the EEG when you put the, when you put these, the EEG electrodes on, on someone's head. Right? So let me show you what this looks like for someone receiving anesthesia. So we have EEG in our operating rooms, so we can measure the brain waves of patients as they, during the time that they're, they're having surgery. So this is an EEG that I recorded on a woman almost six years ago. She's about to have thyroid surgery. She's about 60 years of age. 
She weighs about 80 kilograms. And I'm going to give her propofol. I'm going to give her about 150 milligrams of it. And we're going to watch her brain waves as they change in real time. So there are four brain waves that you see there, four electrodes. So there are two on the, two on the left, two on the right. That's why you see four traces there. And we're just going to watch what happens as she receives the propofol. I'll talk you through it. All right. So at the, at the moment, nothing's happening. So that's just her lying there, kind of at rest. And if you've never seen EEG before, those are eye blinks. Okay. Now what's going to happen now? I'm going to inject the propofol. And propofol burns when it goes in, particularly if you inject it into a small vein, like the one on the back of my hand here. So that's what's happening. And so she's tensing up like this. She's, she's tensing up. And you see there's a lot of noise. All right. Now that's actually going to be good from a pedagogical standpoint, because you're going to be able to see exactly when the drug takes effect. So give me another six or seven seconds here. So look at all that noise. She's tensing up. She's tensing up. Now watch what happens right here. Boom. See those oscillations? Right? They're going to get bigger. The drug is taking over. It's turned off her brainstem, and now she's become unconscious. Right? And now watch. They're going to get even more profound. They're going to go flat and then burst. Flat and then burst. So she is now in a drug-induced coma. She has to be in a state like that so she can, inter so she can undergo surgery. All right? So let's just go back and look at this. All right? So here's what I just showed you. That was her at A. She was awake. And let's say those oscillations are about 5 microvolts or so. Right? Then you saw her go down to this state here, the sedative state, where you saw those very regular oscillations sort of uh, slightly larger amplitude, but very regular. They're about 12 to 16 per second. We call those beta oscillations. Right? Then she skipped over D, and she went, right to, she went right to E. We saw large, slow oscillations. Right? And a rule of thumb, when you see slow oscillations, think that the brain stem, or the lower part of the brain, has been inactivated, the, cent the center that has the arousal systems. So that's probably the propofol reaching those centers and turning them off. Then she went into birth suppression. So birth suppression is a very profound state of brain inactivation. We see it in deep states of anesthesia, as I'm showing you here, but also in coma when patients are hypothermic. So it's a profound state in which the brain was shut off. And you saw she went right into that within less than a minute. And then the only thing that would be deeper is if she were in the state which we call isoelectric, you see, like, between the bursts there, it's flat. So if she were just totally flat, she would be in this state there. The state that you didn't see was this one. It's a combination of what we call slow oscillations, meaning there's less than one cycle per second, or about 0.1 to 1 cycle per cycles per second, and alpha oscillations, which are roughly around 10 cycles per second. We'll just say 10 as a rule of thumb. All right? So you see in D there, there's a combination of them. You see you have the very low frequency oscillations like this, and riding on top you have these higher frequency oscillations. That's a typical pattern for propofol. If you give a young person, someone 18 to 35 propofol, that's the, way you, that's the brain dynamic you would see. And the one state that I didn't talk about is this additional one here, paradoxal excitation. Um, 
It turns out that at low doses, anesthetics can actually cause excitation. It's called paradoxical because you have a drug which is supposed to render you insensate or render you unconscious, but it excites you. And you go, wow, that's paradoxical. But if you think about it, we have a lot of intuition about this already. Alcohol, for example. A little bit of alcohol, you're in a state of paradox excitation. Too much alcohol, and you're in the state of an isoelectric brain. So we have more insight to it than we realize. So in order to really appreciate how we've come to understand what happens to the brain under anesthesia, I'm going to do a little tutorial here on signal processing. All right? Because we want to understand the oscillations. We want to understand their structure. So we need some signal processing techniques to do that. So what I have here is a raw EEG trace. Let's say I'm recording that at one of the electrodes. And I can see it's got oscillations of, of different amplitudes and frequencies in there. Let's see. So if I knew what frequencies I wanted to pick out, then I could build a filter and I could extract those. Let's say I knew that there was an oscillation about every 10, at 10 cycles per second. I could build a filter that would pull out the 10 cycle per second oscillation. If I knew it was around one cycle per second, I could build a filter to do that. But because this is such a dynamic process and it's changing through time, that's impractical because it won't stay at a fixed frequency. So what we use is what's called the spectrum. And what the spectrum does is it takes a signal and it shows you how big the oscillation is, the amplitude of every oscillation, within a given frequency range. So in this particular case here, I'm taking a frequency range from about 1 up to about 30. And that's the signal that I have over there. And I'm showing you its spectrum. So look, you see there's a very large low frequency component there. So if you look to the left of the graph, there's a big spike on the left of the graph, right, right over here. And then if you look in the middle there, around 10 or so, there's another big spike around 10. And that's exactly those two components that I showed you there before. And beyond 20, there's really nothing. So that's for that one 10-second trace of EEG. Okay? Now, but we need to do this over time. So if we take a 10-second trace, we compute the spectrum, and then we move it along, and we compute it again, we'll actually get like a three-dimensional structure because we'll have time on one axis, the frequency that we're looking at on the other axis, and then the on the y-axis, on the y-axis is going to be the amplitude, or how big the signal is. So if we go back here to the spectrum up in the, the second figure there, you see there's a large low frequency component, a large 1 hertz component there. And there's a large, but not as large, about 10 hertz component. And so as we move this over time, as we took successive 10 hertz signals, excuse me, successive 10 cycles, 10 second segments, and we made the spectrogram here, this is what it looks like in three dimensions. So you see you have a mountain range to the left, a valley, another mountain range, and then it's like the ocean out beyond, right? So this is impractical to display in the operating room, so we typically display it this way. So it's like we're flying over the top of the mountain and the valley, and the lower 
panel is the lower mountain range. The middle yellow panel is the middle mountain, the second mountain range. And the blue area up to the top is essentially the ocean. So again, just to recap, what we're doing is we have a way of watching how the oscillations change through time. And this is called the spectrogram when it's over time or just the spectrum if it's just a single, single segment. Right? So, so let's look at it. So this is me now in the operating room and I'm measuring this on a patient that I'm taking care of. This is a 19-year-old woman who was having a short procedure. So I gave her propofol and then I gave her a propofol infusion to keep her unconscious. So you can see in the beginning there you have these slow oscillations and then the slow oscillations turn into slow and alpha oscillations. So you have initially just waves like this. Then you have waves that have a second wave riding on top. So you see there are two bands in the spectrum, one at 10 cycles per second, the top red band, and then a lower one, which is between about one to four cycles per second. And that's the slow or delta band. So this is a typical signature of propofol. If you give a young person propofol and you measure their brain waves, this is how propofol alters their brain waves. All right? And these oscillations are very strong. Let me just give you a sense. Remember a few slides ago, I was telling you that the, when you're awake, your EEG is about 5 microvolts. These oscillations now are between 20 to 50 microvolts in adults. And they can be as high as 1,000 microvolts in kids. So you go from a state like, you go from a state like this, okay, to something like this, right? So you can already start to see, if you need to be in a state like this to communicate, and now I put in oscillations that are like this, it's going to be very, very difficult for the parts of the brain to communicate, all right? So this starts to give you some intuition about how the drugs are affecting the brain. So I've told you a little bit about the structure and the EEG rhythms that you see in time with propofol. Now I want to tell you about what they look like in space, where space is across the, the head. So if you place EEG electrodes across the entire head, you can record the different patterns that the drug produces at different locations across the scalp. So to make this clear, what I'm going to be describing, I need to do a little bit of need to give you a little bit of uh, history from anesthesia and also a little bit of history from neuroscience. So there's an oscillation which is called an alpha oscillation that it's very, that's very easy to produce. If you just stand here like this and you close your eyes and I place electrodes at the back of your head, I'll record a 10 hertz oscillation. It's very, very strong. Pretty much everybody has it. Maybe about 5 to 10 percent of people don't and we tend to lose it maybe as we get older. So this is an illustration of this. So what I've done here is I have a volunteer subject who's lying there with his eyes closed and each of those sites there, there were 64 in all, I'm only showing you 44 of them, is a location where I'm computing the spectrogram like I just talked about in the previous slide. So I can show you what the oscillations are like across his head. So if you see most of it's blue meaning he has oscillations going on, but the amplitude is not that high. But look at the back. Look at the bottom of the slide there. You see he has those two red strips. 
So those two red strips are his eyes closed alpha oscillation. Remember, as I said, he's lying there like this with his eyes closed, and he's producing this very, very regular 10 hertz oscillation. All right, now, so that's the neuroscience piece. In anesthesia, John Mitchenfelder and John Tinker showed in 1977, using monkeys, that this alpha oscillation would start at the back of the head, and when you anesthetize someone, in this case monkeys, it moved to the front, and as long as you kept the animal anesthetized, it stayed in the front of the head, okay? And now what we're going to see is that not only does it stay in the front of the head, but when you turn the, in this case, the propofol off, it's going to migrate, migrate back. So this forward movement of the alpha oscillation from the back of the head to the front is what we call anteriorization, right? And, but also when you turn the drug off, it actually moves backwards. So we're going to do a controlled experiment here. This is a volunteer subject. We're going to give him increasing doses of propofol. We're going to increase the dose roughly every 14 minutes or so up to a level that where he should be profoundly unconscious. Then we're going to back it down. So it's going to take about a little over an hour for him to reach the, the, the highest point. And then it'll take about another hour for him to come down. So this is going to be a little over two hours, what I'm going to show you in just this compressed video here. And you're going to see this alpha oscillation move from the back of his head to the front. When we turn the drugs off, it's going to move backwards. So I'm going to play this now. So you see the, the oscillation in the back. The drug infusion hasn't started, just started. Now watch how it breaks up in the back. See it breaks up. Now you see it's concentrating in the front. It's very, very intense in the front of the head. And if you look from the center of the head back, there's nothing going on, maybe just slow oscillations. And now here's the highest level, five. It's really intense there at five. It's all in the front. Now watch what happens when we turn the drug off. We turn the drug off, it moves backwards. So it moved forward, concentrated in the front and move backwards. That's anteriorization. So there's a temporal dynamic as well as a spatial dynamic to the way the drug, in this case propofol, is affecting the brain. All right? So now we've seen enough phenomenology. Let's talk mechanism. Let's try to understand what's going on. So here's what's happening. Neurons that have GABA receptors are everywhere throughout the brain and the central nervous system. So I've drawn three key sites here. Up in the cortex, in the thalamus, and also down in the brainstem. And what do they do? They create inhibitory networks. Right? So when you administer propofol or another anesthetic which is, acts on these GABAergic receptors, they just go to all the sites where these receptors are and they start creating their actions. Right? But now what we see is, so this is, this is anatomy which we can write out without doing any experiments because this has been known for years. Okay? So the propofol is going to find these sites where the GABA is and it's going to affect how the neurons that have these receptors is going to affect their activity. And I'll tell you one little factoid. The neurons which, have, which are inhibitory act as kind of routers, like routers in a computer network. They sort of control the excitatory neurons with a ratio of about 1 to 8 or 1 to 10. So if you control those routers, right, you're going to control large areas of 
brain activity. All right, so that's kind of the setup. That's, that's the anatomy of the setup. Now, so here's what happens. So I can write down that anatomy. I go to the operating room. This is what I see. So how does that anatomy give me this pattern here? That's the question I want to try to answer for you now. So I did an experiment that I just showed you the result, a little bit of the, a few of the results of, and I see an oscillation like this. Now I have to tell you one other little factoid about the results from this experiment which I didn't mention before, and that is when you see that 10 hertz oscillation concentrate in the front of the head, it's what we call coherent. By coherent, I mean that if you measured the correlation between a site in the front of the head here and a site in the front of the head here, that correlation is about 0.9. In other words, all the oscillations there are moving in sync together. All right? So that says that maybe they're being produced by some central area or some central focus. All right? So what do we think is going on? So here's what we think is happening. So this is someone who's conscious. And when you're conscious, you have broadband communication going freely back and forth between various parts of the brain. In this particular case, I'm drawing the thalamus, which is roughly in the center of the brain, and it's a major way station. All sorts of information comes through the thalamus. Sensory information, auditory information, pain information, visual information. So it's a central way station. So if you wanted to tie up one area of the brain and make someone unconscious, the thalamus would be high on the list, and arguably at the top of the list. Now, it's richly connected to the frontal cortex, the area we think about typically for reasoning, if you would. Right? So, normally, as the arrow indicates, there's broadband communication between the thalamus and the cortex, and you have an EEG pattern that looks small, like the one I just showed you. Now you administer propofol, and you see a pattern that looks like this. You see the large slow oscillations and the 10 hertz oscillations riding on top. And so what was broadband communication going freely back and forth now turns into this 10 hertz oscillation, like this. Right? So what do we think is happening? When you see the 10 hertz oscillation appear, what our modeling studies, our mathematical modeling studies have taught us is that it's most likely an oscillation going back and forth between the thalamus and cortex at about 10 cycles per second. We've now verified that by doing experiments in rodents to show that that's indeed the case. So if you should be communicating like this in a broadband fashion to have consciousness, and all of a sudden you can the oscillations come in like this at a regular 10 hertz cycle, it's going to disrupt the ability for these two parts of the brain to communicate and put you in a state where the parts of the brain wouldn't be able to exchange information, hence unconsciousness. All right? So that's what we think is happening. But what's interesting, look at that trace down there. You see the 10 hertz oscillation there, but you also see this large slow oscillation. All right? I didn't explain that. You get two oscillations there with propofol, the 10 hertz oscillation and the slower delta oscillation. Let me talk about that now. So here's what we think is happening. So this was the, this was the alpha oscillation, 
and the slow oscillation. And I wanted to put this up again because you see, you see how the alpha oscillation and the slow oscillation are just as strong, they're just as red, so they're just as intense. The alpha oscillation is in the front of the head, it's coherent. It turns out that the slow oscillation, and we could see this if we go back and look at the video I showed you, is everywhere, and instead of being coherent, it seems to be quite incoherent. It's not connected. In other words, various sites where it's occurring don't seem to be connected, at least as far as the human EEG is concerned. All right. So, what do we think is going on there? Well, we got some insight into what's happening there from an experiment that we did in patients with epilepsy. So patients that have intractable epilepsy, after they failed all medical therapies, they actually come for surgery. The surgeon and the neurologist work very hard to locate the part of the brain that they think is causing the disturbance. And once they feel that they've identified it, they'll conduct a surgery to remove that area of the brain. So the way they do that is, the patient comes in, gets electrodes implanted like the ones I'm showing there, in the area of the brain where they think the seizures are occurring. They stay in the hospital for five to seven days, off of medications, so they've had enough seizures so they can triangulate what the location of the seizure foci or focus may be. Then they'll come back to the operating room to have the electrodes removed, then in a subsequent operation, they'll have the seizure focus removed. Right? So when a patient comes back to the operating room a second time to have the electrodes removed, we have a natural experiment from an anesthesia standpoint because the person has to receive general anesthesia to have the electrodes removed. So what we do is we just record the neural activity to try to learn what happens when you give someone, a when you give someone anesthesia recording not from the scalp now, but directly from the brain. So these were some very, very insightful studies. It was the PhD thesis of one of my graduate students, Laura Lewis. So if you look on the left there, you see the conscious state. You see the oscillations like I was showing you before. They're low amplitude with you know, kind of high frequency. And the, bottom, the line below that shows you what the neurons are doing. The neurons are spiking pretty much wherever they want to. They can do whatever they want. They can communicate freely. Now look on the right. The slow oscillations have taken over, right? And the colors on the traces correspond to the locations on the brain that I'm showing you below. So you see a red trace, you see a blue trace, and you see a green trace. And then below that, you see these little histograms. You see little bunches of activities. So look what happened. When the, person was, when the person was awake and conscious, the neurons were spiking wherever it wanted to. But now when propofol takes over, see how the neurons can only spike now? Little bunches, see the histograms, they spike now, they spike now. So this is a neuron that's recorded next to where that red electrode is sitting. Now, if we were to look at a neuron that's recorded next to the green electrode, Whereas the red electrode, the red, the neuron next to the red electrode is spiking here, the one next to the green electrode is spiking here. It's like this. It's like this. So if it's important for neurons near the red electrode to communicate with neurons near the green electrode, that's going to be very difficult to happen because they're spiking at different times. They're out of phase. Right? So now imagine you have this happening 
across the entire head, you can see it's going to be very difficult for parts of the brain to communicate, hence another potential mechanism to make someone unconscious. So we've done two, right? We had the alpha oscillation, which was in the front of the head, right? And we think it represents strong coupling between the thalamus and cortex, restricting communication. But then all across the head, the slow oscillation is creating these, these little islands, making it very difficult for neighboring areas of the brain to communicate. Then there's the anteriorization, which you can see is you have an oscillation moved from the back of the head to the front. So these are three potential mechanisms through which propofol could be making you unconscious. Now, why is this important? It's important scientifically because it helps us understand something about brain dynamics. But it's also important practically because anesthesiology is often criticized when we have events of patients being aware under anesthesia and the anesthesiologist didn't know it. So if someone came to me and said, Emory, you know, the last time I had surgery, I had uh, awareness. I was awake and the anesthesiologist didn't know it. And I'd say, well, that's not going to happen. So I'd use the EEG. I would administer propofol or one of the other agents until I saw dynamics like the ones I'm showing you here. And if anything I've suggested is even approximately correct, I have a way of knowing when a person is sufficiently unconscious such that he or she wouldn't have awareness. Part of the reason that this problem still persists today, even in 2019, is that most anesthesia care is given without using the EEG in the way that I'm suggesting. So this is a, an easy issue to fix, but it's a way of fixing it not just by using patterns, but also understanding the dynamics that sort of underlie those patterns. I want to make one final point. General anesthesia is not sleep. An anesthesiologist might say to a patient, excuse me, Mr. Smith, I'm going to have you go off to sleep for your surgery. And you can understand why he or she might not say, excuse me, Mr. Smith, I'm going to put you in a drug-induced reversible coma. That would not be very reassuring to the patient. By the same token, we shouldn't say sleep because anesthesia is not sleep. And I've drawn this out here. So if you look at the first row there, I'm showing you what it looks like when the EEG in patients that are awake. So on the left, you have just the normal EEG. And on the right, there's that eyes closed alpha oscillation. You see that nice regular 10 hertz oscillation. So those are two awake states. Down the left column, what I'm showing you is the states of anesthesia that I showed you before. Down the right column, I'm showing the stages of sleep. Remember, sleep has two big components. It goes non-REM, REM, non-REM, REM. You cycle through them, so non-rapid eye movement sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. You cycle between REM and non-REM roughly every 90 minutes. You do it about four to six times a night, and you typically are awake from the state of REM. So if you think about what's happening, you're going, this is a normal physiologic oscillation that transpires between two oscillatory states. The non-REM state usually has slower oscillations, and the REM state has higher frequency oscillations. And they have different physiologic characteristics. Roughly speaking, the brain is more active during REM sleep, whereas non-REM sleep, it's less active. The body is more relaxed during REM sleep. The body is potentially more 
active during non-REM sleep. So there are two different conditions. What happens when we give you anesthesia? We bring you down to one of the states on the right and we hold you there. So you're just sitting there doing this. You're not going through a normal REM, non-REM oscillation state. And in fact, no single drug could make you have the oscillations or produce the oscillation between REM and non-REM sleep. So when we take drugs to help us sleep, the idea is perhaps they sedate us and then our natural sleeping tendencies or systems take over. But remember, those medications themselves don't allow us to have normal sleep. Moreover, general anesthesia is definitely not sleep. So using those drugs to try to produce sleep is not a good idea. So these are the main points which I've made. As I've tried to show you, under general anesthesia, the brain is dynamic. It's not turned off. I've shown you how anesthetics create ar altered arousal states, in this particular case, how propofol creates unconsciousness by generating oscillations and sustaining them. And we believe that it's these oscillations which are impairing the communication between brain regions, therefore rendering a patient unconscious or in other situations insensate with other drugs. And as I've shown you, these oscillations are readily visible on the electroencephalogram, so it suggests that we have a way of monitoring patients under anesthesia so we can know how unconscious they are, we can decide if we need to give more or less of an anesthetic. And I think this is a very important practice which could make the use of these anesthetics even safer today. So I want to thank you for listening. And in the next segment, I'm going to tell you, take you even further into the world of dynamics of the brain under anesthesia.